0: The Spin-Off Podcast Network.
1: We believe where you live shouldn't decide your destiny and that any place can be a place of learning. So much of modern life has a handy home delivery option. Why not your education? Maybe you'll start your degree in the same space you share with your whānau or from that corner of the spare room that catches the most sun. Start your new what at the place where where can be anywhere, online or on campus. Massey, New Zealand's leading online university. Apply now at massey.ac.nz. Ki te kahore te iwi. Without foresight or vision, the people will be lost. Kia ora koutou, I'm Stacey Morrison. No mai, mai, welcome to Conversations That Count, Ngā Faitake, a thought-provoking series brought to you by Massey University and The Spin-Off. On this first episode, I'm joined by Christoph Schumacher from Massey University and Justin Latif from the spinoff. Together we'll discuss the difference between equality and equity, looking at how in a New Zealand society of unequal opportunity, we can ensure fair outcomes both in education and life more generally. Justin is a former communications director at the Child Poverty Action Group and currently the spin off South Auckland editor, as well as being chair of the Board of Trustees at a school in South Auckland. Christoph is a professor in innovation and economics and director of Massey's Knowledge Exchange Hub. Then our Kurua, Justin Kuruku Christoph. We'll start with you, Christoph. What do you consider to be the difference between equality and equity?
0: Equality essentially means treating everyone the same. Meaning, if whatever we do, we don't take personal uh, situations into account. Whereas equity would mean we treat everyone differently. Uh, we focus on the different circumstances and take these into consideration. Um, how do we ensure that everyone has a fair go or has a fair share of the prosperity that is created in, in New Zealand um, by taking their specific circumstances into account?
1: Having a fair go is a nice Kiwi way to describe it, I believe. And so Justin, in your understanding, do you think we are fundamentally an equal country?
2: I would say um, no. Um, yeah, for a number of reasons. I think our stats are fairly clear that um, large sections of our society are starting on the back foot. Um, their children are more likely to grow up in um, unhealthy homes. They're Communities are more likely to be policed heavily um, and their schools are less likely to be of a high standard. And so, yeah, in, in that respect, no, we, we're not an equal society.
0: I wholeheartedly agree and I can put some numbers to that because I've spent several years with a team of researchers trying to measure equality in New Zealand. And, and what we have seen is we've measured, we normalized it between zero and one. Zero would mean we are all equal and one is we are not. And we could see looking back in New Zealand that in, in the eighties, we were sitting at about 0.7. So New Zealand was a very egalitarian country, but then came uh, considerable economic reforms, what we call Roger when New Zealand moved very much into a market-focused economy, and then uh, equality started to drop quite considerably, and um, we've now reached sort of a 0.45 on on our scale. We've sort of flattened out a bit in the last 10 years, but between the late 80s and the early 2000s, um, uh, inequality started rise or we saw a lack of uh, equality. So I would absolutely agree that New Zealand no longer is sort of an equal country. It, it might have been in the 80s, um, but not, not any longer. And to put this into a, a bigger context, um, currently we believe that the top 10% of New Zealanders own about 65% of the total wealth in this country.
1: What do you think a more equal New Zealand would look like, Justin?
2: I think it's a place where people can um, know that they can go to a school and be able to get an education that will then help them be able to basically go into some sort of career that they enjoy and and would be able to achieve their potential. Currently, people's options in in low-desire schools is limited because they um, don't necessarily feel like they're, they're getting the same opportunities as someone who goes to a school in a potentially higher decile area.
1: And you've seen examples of that in South Auckland in particular?
2: I guess um, what I see in South Auckland is we we have a, like a, a talent drain in, in the sense that our bus stations are full every morning of kids who have managed to find um, out-of-zone applications into schools in central Auckland. Um, and so it means that the schools in South Auckland, um, where my daughter goes and where my wife teaches, are... Um, essentially the kids who couldn't find a place outside um and but that doesn't always mean they they do less well, but it it generally um, puts them on the back foot.
0: I see the same thing at, at university. Last year, um, I had a Maori student, which was top of my class. She asked every exam. And after three weeks, she approached me and said, sorry, but I don't think I can no longer attend because I have to look um, help with the family at home. I get no support from home. Um, and in fact, she gets discouraged to attend university. Um, and three weeks after that, she actually withdrew. Um, which, which actually shows the, the real issue when we talk of, uh, equal access and the opportunity. Um, it doesn't really happen, um, that way because it's a much, much broader, um, spectrum. Somebody who grows up with maybe both parents having gone to university and gets support at home will end up with a good degree. And we know that is correlated to a good income job, which then will open doors for you, um, just telling someone you have the opportunity to attend, but um, the bigger infrastructure isn't there, and doesn't make any difference.
1: So, what would that bigger structure look like to create more? equity.
0: Above all, I think it, it needs to be a change in, in mindset right through the society. Often we see that uh, at the top from the government there are initiatives and they make grants available or scholarships and so on, but they never reach sort of the front line the, at the community level where people need to know each other in order to say, hey, there's something you can do and maybe we can help you with um, getting you child care so you can make the time available to actually uh, attend um, those classes or school or, or university unless the support structure is is there.
1: So if we look at that individual example of the Māori woman who couldn't stay in university even though she had the skills, I guess I start to think about our Fano structures, our iwi structures, and how the impact of urban drift has really destroyed what could have been, ideally, a traditional structure that supported that woman. Is that something you've seen as a contributor to the inequity that we see, Justin?
2: Absolutely, and and it's um, also in our Pacifica community who have come here from the islands um, and have the same challenges because, say, a large part of their family is is back in the islands or, or that wider support structure, those grandparents and those older aunties and uncles. But yeah, I guess how do people build up those networks and support networks when you are coming into a community that is new to you. It's, it's really hard. And I think a big part of that is, um, people tend to build community around places where you own property or own land or own a house. And so, um, I think a lot of this can be, um, remedied by people who can actually buy into the, the places they're moving. And so somehow we have to make our, it easier for people to buy homes. Um, we can't, build communities um, purely out of um, social or subsidised housing or, or off um, the back of rental communities.
1: Right. And so what part does the government have to play, Christoph? because you were talking about how we can start a community Fano, we We've had example of iwi level. What role should the government play?
0: I think we've, we've seen a start with the government with with its standard living framework by trying to identify um, where problems arise. The real issue, however, is how... Um, does the money or the resources directed from the government reach um, the community level? Often um, too much gets lost on the way or doesn't reach the people um, at all. So I think there needs to be a lot closer communication and interaction um, between initiatives that happen at the community level and government. Uh, so we know that the funds that are made available don't get wasted on the way and actually reach um, the people, um, that need them and the infrastructure that comes with, this, for example, a positive thing possibly that could come out of the whole corona crisis is that we've now moved more into online teaching modes that, uh, I know at Messy our classes are now available online and in, uh, students interact more. Uh, through these forms which means not everybody would need to have to travel from a certain place to the university um, to complete the degrees but it requires broadband connection internet connection and, and possibly the, the hardware so that students possibly could take part and further the education without having to travel the long distances or still being able to help uh, with the family and, and still do do this.
1: And Justin, I I want to pick up on what Christoph said, a a term funding that is wasted. So sometimes you see things earmarked for South Auckland. Do they actually get to where they need to be in terms of funds?
2: Probably not. We have a lot of organisations in South Auckland staffed by people who don't live in South Auckland and have a very limited understanding of South Auckland. And it's very easy to um, have a superficial understanding of the issues and then go back to your communities. And so it means that then when you're making decisions about priorities, um, they're based on some assumptions you have rather than real um, experience. Um, and so that's probably where I see the disconnect happening. And and then what I see in South Auckland is a lot of organisations who are based there and run by people who live there is they don't know how to connect well to the, the government and to funding agencies. They don't have that um, cultural capital or that in with the right people, and so you you, you do have that disconnect.
1: So, Justin, what are some community-based initiatives that you've seen work or that you see potential for, particularly in terms of the community enacting and and being powerful and and leading, actually, how they ensure some success
2: one is you know my, my daughters go to a, a little kindy or one of them now because the other one's at school um in Mangere east the kindy also is a social service provider they have um, community gardens they have an op shop they have um, social workers who work in schools and so that is uh, this holistic kind of service that is empowering people um helping people get into work um they can go and buy cheap clothing. They can learn how to garden. And it's a great example of where you have an educational centre but also becomes a community hub providing. It was a really great series of wraparound services. I've done some work recently with um, Tamaki Regeneration Company. And, they, you know, they had a controversial start to how they began, but what they're doing now, which is really impressive to me, is that so the rental income from those um, subsidised or social housing that they run goes back into um, employment schemes and um, a whole bunch of community initiatives, rather than, say, in my area, the Housing New Zealand income goes back to the Housing New Zealand pot and, and pays for whatever it pays for. But they are able to reinvest that money into the community. They employ local people as their tenancy managers. They employ local people as their maintenance staff. And so you have this um, great local procurement, um, and so people are starting to feel um, like their community is um, their community, Not they're not being done to, they're actually part of something.
1: Christoph, I'm really mindful of then rural communities. If we live rurally, then what are the considerations we need to make to ensure that they can actually still have access to education and to some of the growth that needs to happen?
0: Um, technology um, might have a part. To play. Um, I've been working with some bigger companies who are looking at uh, establishing sort of technology hubs in in rural New Zealand. Um, And if if we can link uh, businesses into that um, to support and and, and sponsor and then can set up these hubs throughout New Zealand uh, and provide people with access and uh, a way to even so being further away from the big cities, um, still don't feel left out or left on their own devices. Um, I think that would be very, very useful.
1: What's in it for businesses if they sponsor things like that?
0: Maybe sometimes that doesn't need to be any financial gains, but um, a feeling of actually doing something good uh, for the environment you live in, giving something back. Um, we at universities always try to do this because we understand how privileged uh, we we are. Um, you would hope that there are reputation effects that people understand and acknowledge uh, that sometimes you, you pay something forward rather than expecting um financial returns, and uh, just showcasing your expertise and and capabilities might have spillover effects into other business.
1: Christoph said something about understanding privilege and why the universities do things because they understand they have privilege. Do you think that's part of this conversation as well, Justin?
2: Absolutely. I mean, I think when you talk about communities that are struggling to support their um, poorer aspects of their community. It's because they don't understand their privilege and they think that they um, are purely, you know, um, in their situation through their own graft and, and don't understand the advantages they've been given, you know, going right back to, um, you know, the way land was divided up after the Treaty of Waitangi was signed and the way that land was then, you know, taken off people. You know, I see it in, in Mangere, you know, I've just been chatting to, the guys out at Ihumatau, and and you know that they are dealing with the consequences of land being taken off them illegally in the 1860s, and they're still trying to um, negotiate that process. So, and and that loss of land actually has economic impacts. It's not just um, I don't know whether people think it's a fluffy liberal idea that oh, but it's it it they are in the process of trying to you know, establish their um, economic base by trying to um, have access to their land again. And so that has deep impacts. And then you, you see families who, you know, I was spending some time with my in-laws in Tauranga over the weekend, They and we were, they were just talking about, oh, this guy owns 200 hectares of land, which his family have owned for three generations, and this family over here owns this much land, and they've had that for, you know, so that um, generational wealth um, then sets their children up to be able to go to university or go travelling because they, they can you know um, benefit from that, the land that they have. So I guess that's where the privilege, we don't always realise, well, we're, we're getting this stuff because we're, our families were set up in this way.
1: But privilege is quite a triggering word. Isn't it, Christoph? for New Zealanders in particular who like to believe, say, in the 80s, like you said, we had a more equitable society?
0: Yes, and it, it, it goes right back to the point I made that while many people believe we have equality of opportunity, uh, we, we don't because wealth does matter and it presents you with opportunities that people without that initial wealth simply don't have. As Justin said, sometimes it's purely coincidental who ended up with some initial wealth and and who didn't. It's hard to accept that that should be the deciding factor on how you will do later on in life, uh, whether you be just given that initial endowment or or not. And and that's what I I meant with also the privilege that we need to understand um, some of us have. Um, and we shouldn't take for granted. And we need to make an effort to ensure that we have more equity, that those without that initial endowment still have the opportunity uh, to make a change and don't feel locked in um,
2: into a certain cycle.
1: And so where does education sit in growing that opportunity?
2: It's, I mean, it's, it's so important in South Auckland you know, uh, school leavers twice as likely to leave school without any qualifications. If they're going to go into tertiary study, they are um, twice as likely to having to do bit- bridging courses or catch-up courses. They're also um, likely to, to take up about seventeen k worth of student loan to do those bridging courses. So they're already entering just to get to the, the starting line in terms of their tertiary qualifications. They've already taken on $17,000 worth of debt before they even start a degree.
1: And it's not ability-based.
2: Yeah, I mean, if those same kids went into um, a central Auckland school, they're more likely to actually um, not have those outcomes. The other situation is you have um, lots of school leavers leaving too early without qualifications and going into like a some kind of training course that sets them up for a, a job that doesn't have a, a great prospect.
1: So a pay rate's part of this conversation as well, Christoph, do you believe? for, say, a livable wage, what role does that have to play?
0: The current crisis has clearly shown us what is considered essential and clearly reminded us that a lot of people who have been risking their lives uh, and be there for others are not paid um, accordingly. Uh, And it's exactly those people at the that minimum wage range in the, whether it's uh, the healthcare sector, hospitals, um, or other public services, uh, have been struggling. And, and I hope, um, something out that's coming out of this crisis is to understand and appreciate how important these essential services are. And that has to go along, um, with the, adjust salary because in a free market we do believe people should earn um, based on their marginal contribution. Um, so if we understand that this contribution is higher than what we initially anticipated, then um, they need to be compensated uh, accordingly.
1: So what's the best way to ensure that happens? Is that the government saying UBI or there's a livable wage and everyone just has to pay it? Or does the private sector have a leadership role here.
2: The the private sector, you know, we now have a, a situation where they they can't just, um, uh, you know, import workers. They're actually going to have to find a way to invest in the local workforce, and that's going to mean probably different um, ways they um, practice. I've been working with some or some work some construction companies who who do a lot with their workers to um, help them get into housing. Um, to help them they they have started their own trade company, a uh, trade training organization to actually train train up their workers who who enter their workforce who don't have the training that they need. Um, they have like a, almost like a counselor or a social worker employed at their site to help staff who are dealing with really serious you know um, social or mental health issues. So I think you already see there are um, private sector companies who are actually going that extra mile because they know that part of their investment is also into their people, not just into the, the, the tools of their trade. I think a solution
0: has to involve government, the private sector uh, and communities and also the individual um, that you actually need to be actively involved or interested in in making a change i don't think government alone can do it and i don't think um, the private sector alone can do it uh, and it needs government regulation and support at the top so that there's a mandate uh, for companies to to follow up and um, we need the right points at the community level that are accountable to what they do so we know it gets to the right um, places and we need to measure and monitor uh, and redefine what we mean by success um, so we can continuously Im- improve what we are doing. It's not good enough just to come up with a, uh, a framework of what we think um, should happen. Uh, we need to also ensure that people participate, want to participate, and then continuously measure whether what we have achieved is in fact success and in line with what we try to um, achieve. So I, I strongly believe that it needs different parties involved at the same time in order to tackle this.
1: Do you think that needs another government entity to be in charge of equity, or is there a whole lot of sectors of the government that can work together on this without creating a new kind of approach or a particular sector uh, that is focused on achieving equity?
0: I don't think we need another level of bureaucracy. Um, And there's actually enough money spent by the government on initiatives. Um, It just needs to be spent in the right way and it needs to be spent effectively and if it sometimes means we need to reconsider what we are doing then
2: that needs to happen One really positive maybe, change has been the well-being focus to how a budget gets built because now you're seeing um, instead of budget bids being made by separate departments and then competing against each other they are now trying to put co-bids together Um, and so you have a situation where the Ministry of Pacific Peoples has worked on a bid with MBIE, um, and there's this thing called the Pacific Skills Shift, which will be a hopefully an initiative that gets um, people stuck in. Um, uh, kind of entrenched into low skill work and be able to retrain them into high skill high paying work
1: and it's very much a foundation of Kopapa maori approach to health and and to many things so there's a lot of working parts there but just not working together as well as they could be as what I'm hearing from you both so what does equity and education in particular look like to you and how do we get there Christoph, now we're trying to save the world
0: um those are the, the difficult questions um we do know that education is means something different for different people that um the environment matters the cultural background matters uh, But at the same time, we also need to be aware that no matter where or how we educate our students, they will compete in a place later on that brings it all together and and mixes it up. So while I do think um, that we need to address cultural background in our education, um, I don't think it should happen in separate ways, but we should learn. From each other um, the research center i lead i always make sure i get people with different backgrounds and different disciplines come together because i strongly believe good things happen when people with very different diverse backgrounds come together trying to tackle a single problem you would be surprised how people see the same issue in a very different way and come up with different solutions so the challenge is to bring this all together and and, and learn from each other um I would hope that uh, we can learn about the cultural differences. We take this into account, but at the same time, we need to ensure um, that there's a general standard that uh, enables all our students, no matter where they are from, with what background, what their learning capabilities are, is to compete in, in this one world we have out there. Um, I think technology now should enable us to to connect better, um, and to be more open and, and understanding, um, uh, it's sometimes very hard when, when I have students with, with different background, different ethnicity, to connect with all of them at the same time, um, and, and I fully understand, um, how to address these issues because Again, I wouldn't often have the time, and uh, in in my two or three-hour lectures, where I see students a week, that's simply not possible. So we need um, the support system around it, and I believe, at least what I can say from New Zealand universities, they're trying to do a good job uh, to to put things together to, to reach out, um, but it needs to come from from both sides, um, and maybe a bigger appreciation of how much we can learn from, from each other um, to, to improve um, whatever it is is we are doing.
1: Justin, you were talking about how people can start their career with a $17,000 debt and more. So is that part of the issue that we need to remove fees or what does it look like to have more equity in education?
2: I mean, as someone who sits on a school board when we're making decisions, one of the things we continually want more of is um, more more support for the students who are really struggling. I think um, a student is going to do better in school if those hurdles are removed at earlier and earlier stages in their learning journey. Um, and so... I think one really quick way to, to bring more equity um, in education is more learning support, more, um, you know, we at our primary school we had girls who were talking about suicide and um, um, really serious issues like this. You know, these are girls in their, um, you know, uh, maybe 11, 12, 13. And so that just seems so young for kids to be thinking about that. And then there's kids with learning difficulties, kids who are coming to school with really serious health can Issues due to the, the poor housing they live in. So, um, and then there's parents who who can't get their kids to school because they worked all night, and then they've um they've they've come home at six or seven in the morning, and then who's going to get the kid ready? Um, who's going to provide them breakfast? Um, you know, and they don't have a say, have a car. How are they going to get to school when it's raining? Those sort of things. So, how do you remove those hurdles at that early stage? Um, I think a lot more learning support would be a great way to do that.
1: And Christoph, by the time they get to university, what's your thought on the fees and, and what it takes to be able to participate in tertiary education?
0: At least removing the fees uh, will give everyone uh, a better chance um, to to study because you don't end up with a huge student loan or uh, struggle to even uh, enrol because you don't know how to, to finance it. Uh, But that's only one part of the puzzle. The other part is um, the the support systems around it. Um, As I've mentioned uh, with my my student, she could have had a very, well, in my mind, she would have achieved her degree with flying colors. um, But if she can't manage to show up, uh, then, a scholarship or or free education wouldn't help um, either. Maybe we need to, uh, reconsider uh, several issues of from from the school level what we teach um if we talk so much about well-being why don't we specifically teach more what well-being could look like um what it mean with us when we hear that uh, young students struggle with stress which which has happened and is keeps increasing why don't we have specific classes in how to to manage how to recognize stress how to even Uh, understand emotions I mean um, we we teach a lot of very specific um, topics uh, but some of them that deal with our well-being we seem to neglect maybe we need to start thinking differently in how we group students together. Uh, so far, we always think age is, is the right factor. If you're 10, you're in the same class with all other 10-year-olds. But maybe there are different ways um, uh, to, to put people together and um, to provide an environment where they can strive um, better.
1: Do you have something else to add to that? You just have that look about you. <laughs> I guess
2: I've just been thinking, I was talking to a friend of mine who grew up in Ihimata, and she was telling me about how she grew up um, – Basically, sitting at her grandparents' feet in, in Marai meetings, and, and really got a sense of who she was, um, her culture, her language, and but also about the expectations of, of duty and responsibility to make the world a better place. And it really struck me that um, you know she's gone on to become a successful journalist and um, you know business owner, and also many of her cousins are as well, um, and they have done that based on a really strong anchor that their marae provided them um and i think there's a lot of learnings for our um you know poorer communities or well, how do we create anchor points um not everyone can um pakapapa back to a marae right in the you know heart of Māngere. so what are other ways that we build anchor points and in the principles that come out of um that uh Ta Maori perspective it can be you know really spread right across New Zealand it doesn't just have to be for Maori
0: at, at university level, I think the job is a lot easier than for example at school level. I fundamentally don't need to form character or build character of my students i'm tend to focus on conveying knowledge transferring knowledge whereas the school level um, teachers need to have a greater role in in, in shaping and helping and building character um, same as as through family so um, I'm always delighted when I can have students that we can help and uh, provide them with opportunities and then they they succeed we We try to help students um, that are struggle but um, often the important part has to happen before Uh, students reach uh, university.
1: And importantly we can talk about individuals who manage to succeed but rather than being exceptions we need structures that ensure the majority can participate and then we achieve equity.
0: Absolutely. Uh, often it's individual driven and we need to make sure that this is not coincidental or one of things, but what can we actually learn from this? Why has it worked? Why was an individual successful? And can we replicate this on a, on a larger scale? And then we can start uh, making a difference.
1: Tēnā Arawa to Thank you both so much for joining us all the way from Germany, Professor Schumacher, and a little closer to home, Justin.
2: Thank you so much. Thank
1: you very much. Engari hei kōrero this is one of those conversations that count. You've been listening to Conversations That Count, ngā kōrero faitake, brought to you by Massey University and The Spin-Off, hosted by me, Stacey Morrison, produced by Jane Yi and Matthew McCauley, with music by Grayson Gilmore.